Please open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Bible in the pew in front of you, the Black Bible. You're also welcome to take it home. If you have trouble finding the book of Matthew, it's the very first book in the New Testament. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 28. We all want to be part of something that is greater than ourselves, right? We all want to be a part of history. We want to feel like our lives have real meaning, real value, like we're not just sort of working ourselves from here to the grave. For some people, this impulse leads them to being involved in activism of various sorts. For other people, this impulse leads them to invest all of their time, talent, and treasure into their children to make their children into the kind of people that maybe they could never be themselves. The same impulse leads ideologues into politics, citizens into civic organizations, and even many confused spiritualists into religion. As Christians, however, we believe that we fulfill this longing, this desire to be a part of something greater than ourselves by living out the purpose for which God has created us, which is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. We recognize as Christians that the thing that we're longing for most in this world is not a movement or a thing at all really, but rather a person. We long for God to be reunited with him. We care less about making history and more about serving the God who is over history and who is himself making history. Our desire for our own personal glory and longevity, that desire is satisfied when we are baptized into Christ and we are folded into his glory and we participate in his forever nature. On top of this, there's the fact that God has not only loved us, but he has also called us to action. He has given us as a church a mission, and our purpose on this earth as God's people is not ultimately fulfilled unless we are being faithful to carry out that mission with vigilance, with determination, with creativity, with endurance, with joy. And so I wanted to to stop and to just hit pause on our series in Ephesians. If you're here this morning and you're a visitor, we've been sort of trekking our way through the book of Ephesians a couple of verses at a time. I wanted to pause on that for a moment for a a one-off sermon on the Great Commission, and there's two reasons why. Reason number one, uh, we've been spending a lot of time talking about the church lately. I don't know if you've realized, but Ephesians as a book, it's really, it's a lot about the church. And I just want us to stop and to remember the reason why we as a church exist in the first place, is to fulfill the Great Commission. On top of that, uh, I wanted to stop and focus on this for a moment because I feel like as a church we're finally moving out of survival mode, okay? When, when someone is fighting to survive, they, they can't really focus on anything other than survival. A drowning man is only focusing on keeping his head above water so that he can get his next breath of air and not go under. 
a person who's fighting to survive, they get a real tunnel vision. And, and that's, it's necessary. If you stop focusing on that most important thing in that moment, you're going to go under and then nothing else really matters at all. But if you do survive and you make it to dry land, you've got to regroup. You can't keep living like you're fighting for your survival. You have to expand your horizons. It felt like this church spent a good amount of time fighting to survive. But brothers and sisters, I think we've turned a corner. That was half of our theme in our members meeting, just rejoicing, praising God for being with us in a very special way. Now, maybe you look around and you go, wow, there's like less than 100 people in this room. Are you sure that you've turned the corner? Yes, I'm sure that we've turned the corner because I don't equate size with success. I don't equate numbers with health. I'm saying as I look around this room and I think about the members of this church, I think the gospel has really rooted down in our lives together. And with that, I think that we must remember that God has called us to carry out a mission as a local church. So with that in mind, let's read Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, and see what that mission is. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Man, how real is this Bible? But some of them doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, this is like he's saying, he can see their hearts. He's saying, don't doubt. Don't doubt. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. It is inspired, inerrant, infallible, and fully sufficient for our lives. Amen. Father, we know that uh, we can never get to the bottom of your grace. We know that we can never exhaust your kindness towards us. So we just ask you together with one heart, one mind, one voice, uh, that you would uh, revive us and, and open our eyes once again this morning to help us to see and to understand and to apply your truth to our lives, both individually and corporately. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the name that has all authority In his name we pray, amen. The Gospel of Matthew is 28 chapters long, and these last few verses in the Gospel, which we've just read together, contain Jesus' marching orders for the church that he bought with his own blood and that he brought into existence for his own purposes. When I came to 6th Avenue, I told the elders that uh, if, if... If I were forced to choose, I would let everything in the church fail except for the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. I would let everything else fail in order to be able to carry out the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. So that meant that I was telling the elders, my first priority as your pastor will be doing house calls and home visits. It will be counseling premarital and otherwise. It will be Bible studies. It'll be Sunday schools. My priority will be discipleship, preaching, raising up elders, and prayer. 
And I told them that if I need to let other things go in order to accomplish those things, I certainly will. And you need to know that up front. So that means that the grass may never get mowed. Which, let me just pause for a second and thank Eric Peterson, brother. I love you so much. I'm so thankful for the way that you serve this church. I came back up to the church last night at 8.30 and you were up here cutting the grass. Thank you, brother. But if the grass never gets mowed, if emails go unanswered, if budgets come in late, if work days don't get planned, light switch covers never get put back on the wall, I'm okay with that as long as I continue to carry out the ministry of the word and prayer. I wanted this to be clear to the elders because I know that pastors in many modern churches are expected to do a number of things that are perfectly fine, they're not at all sinful, but they're also just not the main job of the pastor. It's not the reason why God has given preachers and teachers as gifts to the church. God has given elders one primary task in the church, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And the primary way that we do that is through the ministry of the word and prayer. In the same way, the church itself, the church of Jesus Christ, has one main job. It has one main job. That means this is the job that it needs to do if every other responsibility that the church could have just falls by the wayside. This is its main job, and that is to make disciples of all nations. So what is a disciple? Well, simply put, a disciple is a student. But that can be a little confusing, especially when you think about how we probably think about the term student, right? Uh, If you've ever been a teacher, you know that it's not uncommon for many modern students to be unwilling, uninterested, and uninvested in both their subjects and their teachers, in their whole, their whole education. That's not the kind of students that Jesus is calling us to make of the nations. Jesus is not calling us to make students of the nations as if they are uh, looking for a superficial spiritual education, or he's not calling us to tell the nations that they need to brush up on the finer points of religion to really dial in their Judeo-Christian moral ethic. Jesus is not looking for part-time students to take night classes from him about Christianity when they spend the rest of their lives investing in everything else that really matters. Disciples of Jesus Christ are those that submit their entire lives to Christ. They listen to his teaching and what his word has to say about everything, from marriage to politics, to your career, to your sex life, to your finances, to everything in between. Disciples of Jesus strive with their whole hearts to obey all that Jesus has commanded, which is what we are called to do here in the Great Commission. We go out and we say, hey, listen, obey all that Jesus has commanded. And they do this because they love him dearly. Listen to Jesus as he describes discipleship in his own words. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There's no such thing as a part-time disciple. There's no such thing as a disciple with split allegiances. There's no such thing as a dispassionate disciple. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This isn't in my sermon, but listen. Half of the work that churches do in trying to evangelize is telling people to just come on to Jesus because it's going to be super easy and super fun and super great and you're just going to love it. Jesus seems to be deterring people from discipleship by telling them exactly how difficult it's going to be if they want to follow him. To become a disciple of Jesus Christ is to lose your identity and to take on the identity of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul, in the 26th chapter of Acts, by the time he makes his way to King Agrippa, which is, by the way, not, it's, it's not a long time since Jesus has risen from the grave and Paul is now standing before King Agrippa, the king now knows Paul as a Christian. Christians have just come to take on the name of Jesus. That's what they're known as. They're known as those who belong to Christ. To be a disciple is to so closely identify your life with the life of Jesus that you just abandon your own identity. And that's why baptism is so important. That's why baptism is commanded as a part of the Great Commission. In baptism, what we do is we stand up and we tell the church and we tell the world, I am not my own. I have been buried with Christ. And then when we rise up out of the water, we're telling the world, I now belong to Christ. I've been united to him and I'm, I'm risen with him in glory. So Paul says it like this in Romans 6. He says, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Disciples are not only baptized, but they're also baptized into something. In the Great Commission, we just read that they're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be baptized into somebody's name? Well, if you remember, uh, I wish Blaine was here so he could look at me with that silly grin on his face while I do this, but I use Blaine as an illustration to talk about how a name represents somebody, right? It, it's, it's the symbol that represents every significant aspect of who they are. So when, when I say the word Blaine, you just have this, these attributes that come into your mind. You think big, dumb, smile, right? Uh, you thought I was going to say big, dumb, idiot. I would never say that about Blaine. He's our brother in Christ. You think about his goofy personality. You think about his extroverted tendencies. You think about the way he's like Velcro for people. You think about the way he walks around the church with no shoes on. You think about his generosity. You think about the fact that he can barely make it on time anywhere. All of these things come into your mind when you think about Blaine. So when we are baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we are baptized into the name of the triune God. And we are baptized into the symbol of God's identity. And so our identity no longer exists. God's identity becomes our own. We must remember, however, that baptism is just an outward symbol, right? It's an outward symbol that represents an inward reality. The way that one becomes a Christian is not by being baptized. The way that one becomes a Christian 
It's not being, by being baptized. Said another way, just because you have been baptized does not mean that you are a Christian. Okay? The way that one becomes a disciple of Jesus, well, let me just read from Mark 1, and you can, you can listen to Jesus' words for yourself. He says, well, Mark says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. No say this prayer after me, no come on down to the front, no come on up and hop in the fire truck bathtub baptismal, repent of your sins and trust in Christ. That is how we become disciples. In order to be a student of Jesus, you actually have to be reconciled back to God. You see, the, the gospel has bad news. The bad news of the gospel says that because of our sin, our relationship with God is broken. It's manifestly broken. It can never be fixed. And because of that, there's enmity between us and God. And what that means is that we can't learn from a God that we hate. We can't obey a God that we don't love. We can't be a student of our enemy. And Romans is clear that when we are not saved, God is our enemy. So before discipleship can begin, sin must be dealt with. Listen to Paul talk about the church's mission in 2 Corinthians. He says it like this. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So here's God, here's the world, mankind. There was an issue, a broken relationship. It needed reconciliation. What was the issue? What was keeping God and man separated? It was man's trespasses. So God sent his son into the world to fix that broken relationship. And then it says, therefore we, Christians, the church, are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So we implore you, on behalf of God, be reconciled. You become a disciple of Jesus by first allowing him to reconcile you back to God through Christ and his finished work on the cross. If you're here this morning and you have been trusting in your baptism for salvation, let me plant a seed of doubt in your mind and encourage you to consider what the Bible has to say about salvation and how it is achieved. It's only by trusting in Christ and what he did on the cross to save us. In the Great Commission, God is making his appeal to the world through the church. The church is like the megaphone that God is holding up to his mouth and he's shouting to a lost and dying world that's separating from him. He's saying, I love you. I sent my son to save you. Come back home. He's not doing that through individuals. He's doing that through the church. And that's the main thing that Jesus calls us to as a church. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have any other jobs to do. I've talked before about implied tasks. I remember in the army, my sergeant would tell me to do something and I had to do it. But uh, in order to accomplish that, I had to go do three other little mini jobs in order to accomplish that main job, okay? So for example, the church has other jobs. Titus 3 tells us that we need to be devoted to good works. 
Listen to how emphatically Titus states this. He says, let our people learn to devote themselves. Devote themselves, not, not casual, casually, not waiting for an opportunity to possibly arrive. Be devoted to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Okay? Galatians 2.10 tells us that we must make sure to, to remember to care for the poor. And brothers and sisters, these commands matter. We must be a people who are dedicated to good works. We must walk humbly, seek peace, do justice. If we don't do these things, we will not adorn the gospel that has saved us. We will decimate it with a false testimony that screams out louder than the gospel that we preach. Excuse me, louder than the gospel that we preach. Having said all of that, that does not take away from the fact that the central task of the church is to make disciples. So if everything else fails, this is still our job. I'm going to read a passage of scripture later from the first chapter of Mark that shows the perfect balance that Jesus struck with us in his own ministry. He was going around from village to village and he was healing people. He was casting out demons, but he was also preaching. And one day there was just a bunch of people out there just waiting to be healed by Jesus. And he said, you know what? I just don't have time for this. I got to go preach. That's the reason that I came. And that same attitude is what we're seeking to strive for as a church. We're going to do the good works, but we're going to do so remembering that that's not the main reason why God has given us this great commission. This is our job description. And our job description as a church is so simple that no one should ever have to write it down. Mike McKinley, in his great little book on church revitalization, he talks about uh, why his church doesn't have a mission statement or a vision statement. And he says, well, it's just silly. Do you think that the Yankees have a mission statement? If the Yankees were to draft up a mission statement, what do you think it might say? Win the Super Bowl? Ah, that close, right? Win the World Series, right? Of cricket? No, of baseball. Yeah, I mean, every year, if you say, okay, what's your mission this year, Yankees? It's going to be win the World Series. But what about next year? Win the World Series. And the same thing is true for us as a church, brothers and sisters. Our main mission is to make disciples of all nations. It's so simple. Nobody should ever have to write it down. We should just have that built into our DNA as a church. We just know this is fundamentally who we are. And Jesus has given us authority to do our job, to carry out this mission. So in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And then he says, and now I'm giving it to you. Go and make disciples of all nations. And then at the end of, oh, I love the way Jesus talks here. At the end of it, he says, and I will be with you. Right? It's not this cold, disinterested, here's, here's $10, go to the... No, he says, I'm going to be with you in a very real way as you go out and carry out this mission. My presence is your authority. We live in an age of uh, police officers. Many of us, you know, we, th- we just don't really think about sheriffs very often. And even in our modern day, sheriffs have come to operate primarily like in relation to the county jail. So it's, 
It's a little weird, but you guys remember back in the day, sheriffs were like the peacekeepers in, in towns and small cities, right? Uh, if, you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just go back and watch an old Western or maybe the Andy Griffith show. Uh, you'll remember that sheriffs are elected officials and their job is to keep the peace. But even in, a, even in a small town, a sheriff can't be everywhere and do everything that needs to be done to keep peace in a city, right? So what do they do? Well, they deputize another officer, right? And when that happens, what the sheriff is doing, he's, is he's saying, listen, I am deputizing you with my authority so that when I'm not here, my authority will go with you to do the mission that we have as officers. And the symbol of that authority is the badge. Well, friends, that's exactly what Jesus is doing with us as a church. He is deputizing us. He is giving us authority to carry out his mission in his absence. And the symbol of that authority is not a cross. It's not a Jesus fish. It's not a letterhead or a logo of any particular church, no matter how big and cool it is and how much money and influence it has. It's not any particular denominational slogan. The symbol of the authority of Jesus Christ is the right preaching of the gospel. Now, normally, that comes in the context of the local church, but even in mission situations where there are no other believers around to be gathered into a church, any time the gospel is rightly preached, it's like Jesus is opening, up his, is opening up his jacket and flashing his badge. The preacher of the gospel is going, I'm here, and I bear the authority of Jesus Christ, so what I say matters. And Jesus does not give us this authority to just sit around in a holy huddle, like a bunch of horses gathered around the trough. Jesus does not give us this authority to, he doesn't deputize us, so we'll just sit around the police station eating donuts all day, right? We cannot, we must not allow that to happen. But if we're not careful, that's exactly what we'll end up doing. Do you remember in the book of Acts where uh, Jesus, after he gave the great commission to his disciples, he told them, he said, stay in Jerusalem and wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you so that you can carry out the Great Commission. Okay. He says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And then the, the Spirit came. The Spirit fell. They were anointed with the power to carry out the mission. And they didn't go. They just sat around. Things were pretty comfortable in Jerusalem, you know? A lot of good things were happening there. The apostles had like a, a headquarters of sorts set up there. The church was really growing, a strong community of love. People were coming to Christ in, in great numbers. Jesus told the disciples to take the gospel from Jerusalem out to Judea, out to Samaria, and then on to the ends of the earth. But there they sat in Jerusalem. So the Lord sent a wake-up call. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death. And then in Acts chapter 8, we read these words. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. 
And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The disciples got too comfortable. In their comfort, they forgot about the mission, so God sent them a wake-up call to get them out back on task. So brothers and sisters, we just cannot settle in. We can't just say, oh, we're a small church, or oh, we don't have a lot of money, or whatever the case, we just can't do that. We have a mission, we have the authority of Christ, we have clarity of what our mission is, we must move. You know, I can't speak to what's going to happen with the American church. I'm not God. I'm not really sure how he's going to roll that whole thing out over the next 10, 15, 20, 50, 150, if he tarries, years. But I've got to tell you that if there's any group of Christians in the world today that is in need of a shakeup, where it seems likely that God would send something to just wake them up and remind them what's really going on, it's probably the church in the West, specifically the church in America. Friends, you should know that there's nothing wrong with being comfortable, but there is something wrong with being complacent. And we have to remember that comfort leads to complacency if we are not careful. There are over 17,000 people groups in the world today. 17,000 and 7,000 of them are unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are 7.67 billion people alive in the world today. And 3.19 billion of them are unreached with the gospel. When I was in Iraq, uh, it was the first time that I was surrounded by people of a predominantly different religion. I was surrounded, surrounded by Muslims all day, every day. I heard the call to prayer several times a day, right? Uh, as a soldier, I was just watching people die in front of me on the table pretty consistently. And I really had to wrestle with asking myself the question like, man, do I really believe what this book says? Do I really believe that Every person I'm likely to meet today is going to die and face the wrath of God because of sin. Well, I ended up going to the mission field because I came to think that what the Bible does say is true and that the reality of hell is inescapable and that 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 has a, a, a call on my life as a Christian. And so this morning, I just think we need to stop and ask ourselves as we're considering this mission and we're trying to remember what God has called us to, we just have to ask ourselves, do we really believe this? Because in the American church, it's so easy for us to get together and play church. And you know what? If we don't believe it, if we don't believe this, nobody's ever gonna call us to the carpet. We can live and die pretending to be Christians, pretending like we believe the gospel, and maybe nobody will ever know. Do we really believe that hell is real, that there is a place that God has set aside for the conscience eternal torment of those who have rebelled against him and his holy rule? Do we really believe that God sent his son as a means to save those people and to reconcile them back home in love? 
Do we really believe that God is accomplishing this reconciliation through the preaching of the gospel and the sending out of missionaries? Do we really believe that the authority of Christ belongs to us for this mission? We live in the richest country that the world has ever known and not just rich with resources, rich with theological education, capacity to carry out this mission. Are we going to live like it? Like this is real? Do we understand the reason why we still have life and breath, why the Lord just hasn't taken us home already? Why are we still sitting here? Why are we here this morning? God has not given us another day so that we can just work a little harder and try to save up more money for retirement so that we can just sit around being comfortable in our old age. God has given us another breath so that we can proclaim the glory of Christ among the nations with that breath. Do we understand the reason why we still exist as a church? Do we understand the reason why the Lord has not removed his lampstand as he is prone to do? It's not just so that we can become bigger and bigger and bigger Not that we're in any danger of that. It's not so that we can become the cool church in town or the hipster church in town or the theologically solid church in town. He has given us the continued luminescence of his lampstand so that we can shine his light to a lost and dying world. So two things I want us to consider. What does this mean for our life? And what does this, excuse me, our, life, our lives as individuals? And then two, what does this mean for our lives together as a church? So for us as individuals, I think the first thing it means is that, brothers and sisters, we just need to be faithful in evangelism. This is perfectly timed along with our Sunday school class we had this morning about evangelism in the workplace. Not everybody is gifted to be an evangelist, but every Christian is capable of evangelism and we can all strive to be faithful. Uh, If you wanna know more about what that looks like, I'd encourage you to get to Grant and talk with him about one of the easiest ways to learn how to be a good evangelist and work. Brother, you did such a good job helping us think about that over the last several weeks. I'm sure that he could help anybody there who's having questions about that. One general principle is to just start with those who are closest to you and then move out, right? Think about your coworkers, think about your family members, Think about the, the lady at Kroger or Walmart that is always the one that you happen to see in the checkout aisle or the waitress who's always there at your favorite restaurant. Just think about, okay, these are the people that God has in his providence put into my life's orbit. Let me just start there. I know I can't get to the, the plains of Africa or North Korea, but I can just be faithful right here at Mi Hacienda at lunch after church if you like that kind of food. Friends, learn to grow in your evangelism. Push yourself to grow there, even if you're good at it. One of the stories that I love from the Bible is uh, the story of Apollos from Acts chapter 18. Listen to the way that Luke tells this story of Apollos. He says, meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man, smart guy, with a thorough knowledge of the scripture. Okay, not just smart, but knows his Bible. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor. Okay, so now he's lit up. He's excited. He's like, yo, we're gonna storm the gates of hell for Jesus. Okay, I'm, I'm with you. 
And he taught about Jesus accurately. So he's theologically solid too. He's not just out there gunslinging, right? He actually, he's read some systematic theology. Okay, this is good. Though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard of him, they, excuse me, heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. I think any of us would look at Apollos as, how he, as he's out there just gunslinging for the gospel, and we'd be like, dude, you're amazing. Teach me something. But the fact is, is he still had something to learn. He still had room to grow. So whether you're just like a little baby in evangelism or you're like Russell, who's like, I'm going to go out and take on an entire march by myself, right? Regardless of who you are, you still have room to go. And by the way, let it not be unnoticed that it was two women who pulled Apollos aside and helped him better understand the gospel. Sisters, we need you so much in the life of the church. God uses you to preserve the purity of the gospel. Do not underestimate your role. Okay. Uh, individually, we must support missionaries financially and through prayer. So on prayer, remember Luke tells us that Jesus commanded us to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers out into the harvest. As you have your little prayer list, however it may be, I hope that you're using... Um, I hope that you're using members guides, our membership directory to pray for members of the church, but also throw in there, you know, anything about sending laborers into the field. That's something that the Lord will bless. On giving, I'm going to have more to say about that in our corporate section. Uh, also on prayer, I would consider you, I would, excuse me, I would encourage you to consider using good resources. So uh, if you've never seen Operation World, uh, this is a fantastic book that maybe you and your family can pray through. Um, it, what it does is it just tells you about different people groups like the Burkina Faso. You guys know about the Burkina Faso, but assuming that you don't know about the Burkina Faso in the land of Africa, and again, I know you knew that, but for those who didn't know, the, these are people in Africa. It tells you their geography, their politics, their religion, their language, their economy, and it just, it can really inform your prayers for the lost peoples of the world. So Operation World, if anybody wants one of these and they're thinking, man, look at that thick book. It's got to be expensive. Just come to me and talk to me. If you promise that you'll use it and pray through it, I will get you a copy. Uh, also, consider using joshuaproject.net. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it just does the same sort of thing as Operation World, but it does it on the internet. So if you're like, oh man, a book, I wouldn't even know what to do with that. Do I click it? What's going on there? Right? You can just use joshuaproject.net. Uh, consider going. Listen, some of you will only pray for missionaries. That's just going to be the main thing that you contribute to the Great Commission. And brothers and sisters, that is okay. One of the things that I tell people in counseling situations all the time is that praying is not the same thing as doing nothing. So pray. But some of us will be called to do more, right? We'll be called to give outside of the giving, which the Lord first requires to our local church for the Great Commission locally. But some of you will be blessed by the Lord to be able to give more than that and to support missionary efforts abroad. I would encourage you, if you have that opportunity, to be wise and make sure you choose the right one. But once you've latched on to a missions opportunity, to give and to give faithfully. And then finally, some of us will do more than pray, we'll do more than give, we will give our whole lives, and we will go. 
Some of, it, some of us will go for three or four years like me and my family did, but you should know that our plan was to go and be gone forever. It's just that the Lord had different plans for us. But consider going. Consider the, the attitude and the disposition of Isaiah as he stood before the Lord in his glory. And he said, here am I, Lord. Send me. Individually, we must set up our lives in such a way as to not have any hindrances to the gospel. So like, it, I'm not talking about houses here because you can sell houses fairly easily and get out of debt. But I'm talking like, if you've got credit card debt and car debt and just really debt of any kind for any reason, there's just, there's no good reason to have it. There's a bunch of biblical wisdom that speaks against it. But I mean, just imagine, you're like, okay, Sean, yeah, yeah, okay, I hear you. I want to go. Let's do this thing. And then you go and you talk to a missions agency and they say, hey, you've got $25,000 in debt. You can't go until you pay that off. Or, more tragically, hey, you've got $200,000 in debt. You can't go until you pay that off. Arrange your life in such a way that the mission field will not be easily hindered by you. Consider who you're going to marry. I cannot tell you how many people I've come to know who said, man, the only thing I want to do in this world is take the gospel to the nations. And then a guy or a girl comes along that they just, they, they just man, I got, I, I got to be with her. I got to be with him. And then they come to find out that that guy or girl has just zero interest in the Great Commission. Which, hey, listen, maybe they don't have to go. But you just need to be thinking about these things as you think about your future and you think about the potential of the Lord using you on the mission field. Even just consider whether or not you're going to marry at all. You know, we just spent 10 weeks in 1 Corinthians 7 and the main theme that just comes up over and over again in 1 Corinthians 7 is how can you be used most powerfully by the Lord? For a good number of people, singleness is a gift. It means no distractions. It's the ability to go buy a plane ticket today and be in Sri Lanka tomorrow for the sake of the gospel without having to worry about what school your kids are going to attend. Finally, we must be prepared to suffer. Friends, none of us are going to come out of the Great Commission unscathed. In our local church, things won't always be easy. On the mission field, things will be very hard. But this is what it means to be a committed Christian. We embrace the suck, as we used to say in the military. We just know that it's part of it. There's no escaping it. Listen to Paul in Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Okay, what does this mean for us as a church? Well, it means that we must be committed to using our time, talent, and treasure to complete the mission. Listen to uh, 3 John, verses 5 through 8. And this is about serving missionaries, okay? 3 John, 5 through 8. If you're wondering the chapter number, there is no chapter number because it's like a paragraph. Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do, listen to this, in all your efforts for these brothers. There is a, a sort of concerted, continual, creative effort to serve those who are going out for the sake of the gospel. So in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. That is, make sure that they are well cared for. 
for they have gone out for the sake of the name. Why do we care for them? Why do we love them so, even though in many ways they're strangers to us? Because they've gone out for the sake of Jesus. And because of that, they are close to us as family, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers of the truth. So if you don't go out, that doesn't mean that you can't be a worker of the truth. By supporting them, we are fellow workers of the truth. That's why in our members meeting last Sunday, we allocated some of our funds and our budget to support international efforts at fulfilling the Great Commission. We just said, hey, it's time. We want this privilege of being fellow workers. We want to have a concerted effort towards supporting these endeavors. And when we remember that our budget is ultimately about fulfilling the Great Commission, it's not hard for us to say, hey, take this money and use it well for the Great Commission. We must remember as a church that our members don't belong to us, they belong to Jesus. Listen, it would kill me if the farmers or the Johnsons or the Millers came up to me after service and said, you know, I think I'm going to go to Tajikistan and I'm going to take the gospel to the Muslims in that land. Ugh, it would kill me. You better believe I would be excited. I would be so overwhelmed with joy. I hate the fact that we're going to lose our brother Russell, but I know what the Lord's going to do with him by taking him away from us. And so I'm excited. I have seen churches where they just don't want to let their people go because they just don't trust that the Lord will replace them and provide. Oh, friends, that is not the kind of trust we need to have in a sovereign God who has loved the church and purchased her with his own blood. Will he not? provide for us again? I love Russell, but Russell's not irreplaceable. In the Lord's mercy, I bet you there will be 15 other Russells that come through the life of this church if it tarries for another hundred years. We must devote our time in the public prayers of this church to the Great Commission. I hope you noticed it as, as Russell was praying this morning in the pastoral prayer. I hope you notice it every single Sunday when we pray for the Great Commission work in the life of this church. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And so we pray towards that end. As a church, we must regularly stop and take time to honestly evaluate how we're doing on this front. That's part of the reason why I'm preaching this sermon. After the members meeting and considering where we were in Ephesians and how that was going, I was just, I stopped and I was just like, okay, and providentially I ended up having to preach this week and it all just came together and I said, okay, Lord. Yeah, we need to stop and evaluate. We need to see how we're doing. We need to make sure we're going in the right direction. We must resist mission drift. This is taking us back to Mark 1. Brothers and sisters, I know that this sermon is a little long, but try to focus in on this because it is extremely important. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. Very early in the morning, while it was still still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went out to look for him, and they found him, and they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. What are you doing praying? We got work to do. And Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. The most dangerous threat to any local church 
is not that we will lose the gospel, it's just that we will sidetrack the gospel or sideline the gospel, that we'll be so wrapped up in doing everything else that adorns the gospel that we'll forget that our main mission, mission is to preach the gospel. So let us be a people of good works. Let us have homeless ministries. Let us have uh, you know, any kind of way that we can be involved politically that isn't confusing, right? Whatever the case may be, let us do these good things that adorn the gospel but let's not forget that we must preach the gospel and make disciples. What that means is that we have to remember that the authority of Jesus is only promised to be with us as we carry out the mission. So like as great as it might be for a church to start a community garden or to like do a Maya Angelou poem night where we invite members of the community in to just enjoy the arts together, that's perfectly fine. A little weird, probably not gonna happen in this church, but it's perfectly fine. We just have to remember that that's not the sort of thing that Jesus has promised his authority to us to carry out. Wait, you get what I'm saying. I got a little lost on the wording there. The authority of Christ is with us as we preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. We have to be okay with smallness. We have to remember the parable of the mustard seed, right? Jesus said, hey, you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? Look at that raging army. No, he says, hey, here's this little seed. Speaking hyperbolically, he says, this is the seed that's smaller than any other seed. But look what it becomes. We have to remember Jesus' philosophy of ministry. In order to reconcile the world back to God, he did not enlist an army or a government or an educational institution or a grand financier. He chose 12 disciples. And he told them to do something as silly as, well, what we're doing right here, right now in this room. Preach the gospel. The kingdom of God is being brought forth on this earth through tiny little gatherings like this all over the world. We must reject the wisdom of this world which says we need to be big or flashy or new or stylish or relevant in order to reach the world with the gospel. It seems like as you just survey the New Testament, that's the exact opposite of everything that Jesus and the apostles did. In closing, I have a few things I want us to remember. Number one, we have a job, but it's not a chore. It's a privilege. I can guarantee to hear a moan and a groan from one of my kids when I say, hey, can you please go do this? I ask you to take out the trash like every other day. Why are you moaning and groaning like this is something new, right? She has a job, but for her, you know, my daughters, it's a chore. But for us, our job is a joyful responsibility. Just listen to some of the ways that the Apostle Paul talks about his work as an, as an apostle. He says, in all of our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. He doesn't just say I have joy. He says I'm overflowing with joy. Hebrews, so not Paul, he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Right? So as we're carrying out this mission, we're going to have to endure a lot. If you've ever experienced what it's like to be at war, it's not a pleasant thing. There's a lot to endure, but there's a joy that's set before us. And so as we go out and carry out this mission and we endure some of the difficulties of this mission, we can do so knowing that there's an eternal joy. First Peter, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Number two, 
we must have confidence. Not just joy, but confidence. We're going to go fight the playground bully. But our big brother's coming with us. We don't have to fight on our own. Number three, we can, we can take on this task with confidence because we know how the story ends. There's no surprise. You know, um, if you've ever been involved in any kind of competition, there's a lot of anxiety that arises as part of that competition. And the anxiety is really like, well, what if I don't win? That's the heart of the anxiety. What if, what if I don't win? What if I lose? We don't ever have to experience that as a church. That's just never going to happen. The end is not in doubt. Now, something weird may happen in the American church. This church may fall apart. Who knows? I pray that it doesn't. But we don't ever have to say the church of Jesus Christ, the, the bride that Christ purchased with his own blood that he's promised to sanctify by the washing of the water with his word, what's going to happen with her? Is she going to make it? We don't ever have to worry about that. In closing, I just want to let you hear how the story ends from the back of the book. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, where the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city. Coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God. And its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, 
And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of the God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him there. They will see his face, We want to see your face, Lord. We want to be gathered around your throne. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen.